0: So this morning we find ourselves in our first Sunday of 2018 and working through uh, the Bible together this year, and I won't ask for a show of hands as to how many people... Rick's hand went up nice and high. I was going to say how many people require marriage counseling at this time of year, but but Rick, Rick's pretty eager. Uh, it's... Well, we can schedule that in the bulletin for you for next, next time. Uh, so, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at two passages, Lord willing, in Genesis. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3, trying to provide an introduction, a biblical trajectory for the whole. And now, I want us to look at uh, the call of Abram. So, Genesis chapter 12 is usually where people start the Abram narrative, and there's a sense in which that's right. But it's better to back up uh, to chapter 11, verse 27. So chapter 11, verse 27 of Genesis, we'll read down to 12:9. This is the word of God. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Issachah. Now Sarai was childless, because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out, and continue toward the Negev. Before we consider this passage together, we'll pray. But just before we do that, just a note. Um, we talked about having some uh, men uh, sign up for accountability in terms of having a partner, reading the one-year Bible. Uh, some fellows have done that. Uh, not everyone has to, there's no obligation. But if you're interested in uh, signing up, if you'd like to have uh, someone that you can just be in contact with, over the weeks, as we go through the year of reading the Bible, uh, there'll be a sign-up sheet at the back. Also, we'd also talked about uh, having some home groups. I know some of the Bible studies are going to be based around the one-year Bible. Uh, if you're interested in being part of a small home group and you're not part of one now, also, uh, over the next couple of weeks, we we'll to be putting those together. We figure that now that we're actually starting into the swing of things, it's easy to start to identify those sorts of needs. And so if it's something that you're interested in, please come and see me uh, at the table in the foyer after the service. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would guide and direct us. We would ask that you would uh, open your word to us. We would ask that, uh, like Abram, the father of those who have faith, we will learn how to hear your voice and that we will also be quick to obey. I pray that by your grace, you will prepare us for all that you have for us, uh, whether whatever the events and circumstances of our lives are now, and also what they will be uh, as the year unfolds. Lord, we would pray in a special way this morning for the, the Fisher uh, families. Lord, we just ask that you will give them comfort and strength, uh, that you will draw them close to yourself, Uh, We pray that you will bind them close to one another. And we pray that they will also, uh, even in mourning, they will also be able to rejoice in the salvation of George, Uh, that he was blessed with a remarkable life, that our nation and the world stands indebted to him for his service, that the church here and in many other places stands indebted to him, For uh, the work of love and labor that he was able to do by your grace so that you receive the glory. The people who were touched by his fervent zeal and love and testimony for Jesus uh, as his all-sufficient Savior. Lord, he is utterly unique and irreplaceable and will be greatly missed. And yet, his legacy and impact will carry forward. And we, even this morning, can rejoice that he who, for uh, many years, walked with you and who, over the last number of months, was saying he was ready to go home, has finally walked through those doors and has seen his Savior and is with him forever. May we also through grace and through Christ's righteousness, be prepared for the day of our death, uh, even if it's this calendar year, even as we begin into uh, a new season in life, make us ready to die so that we are able to live, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know uh, precisely how your 2018 has started, and I don't know precisely what your 2018 is going to hold for you, and neither do you, but it's a bit of a cliche, but nonetheless true, that uh, none of us know what a day will bring forth, and so we just don't know uh, what the remainder of the day has for us, we certainly don't know uh, what the remainder of the week or the month or the year has for us, we have absolutely no idea whatsoever what God is going to call us to do. We do have a better handle, hopefully, if we're biblically sensitive at all, we do have a better handle on what God is calling us to be uh, in terms of virtue and character and identity. But nonetheless, we don't know what God is going to call us to go through in terms of circumstances. And although we we do want to be uh, obviously very sensitive to this, uh, I think it, it, it is worth recognizing that one month ago, Uh, we didn't know that George was going to be called home at exactly this time. And so we don't know uh, what time has for us. Many of us, probably, in this room, get this number of people in a room, and uh, undoubtedly there are people who are a little bit frightened. They're a little bit apprehensive about what the future holds. Uh, There are people who are probably extremely excited about what they believe the future has for them. In fact, interesting enough, sometimes that, that fear and that excitement aren't mutually exclusive either. You know, so sometimes you have people who are quite afraid and quite excited, and they're afraid because of exciting opportunities, right? So, so we don't want to make it seem like these are just two totally different types of people. Maybe some people are starting this year though with a real sense of joy and renewed purpose and excitement while others are in a state of grief, really struggling, maybe even confused. So what will this year bring? Abram was in no way expecting what his year was going to bring when God called him to leave everything he knew, all of his security, and go somewhere where he had never been. So if Abram was just starting out 2018 and got this call from God, basically what God was saying was, everything you know, your country, your land, even your father's household, even your family, you're going to set it all aside, and you're going to walk with me, and you're going to trust me, and you're going to trust me going to somewhere where I'm going to show you later. So you're going to pack up and you're going to leave really without a plan, except the plan of trusting me. Now, this is easier for certain types of people than for other types of people. Sure, you know that some people, when they go on vacation or when they go camping, uh, they they have people who go camping a lot already have lists of what they bring when they go camping. They already know how they pack various things. And And they put things away in storage after camping for the next year. And so they know exactly every single thing that they need. It's already done. It's done before they start. And and these people, well, they're effective. There are other people who they will wake up and the carpool is picking them up at 7 a.m. And their alarm goes off at 6. And they hit snooze. And it goes off again and they hit snooze. And at about 10 to 7, they fall out of bed. They go oh, where's the sleeping bag? And they start throwing clothes in garbage bags, and they have no idea what's going on, but they're just in a panic. So so maybe, if Abraham was an organized person, this was really hard for him. Give it all up, leave it all behind. There's no plan except the plan to trust me. Now, what's important to understand, though, is the context. Nation, land, father's home. But there's a greater context. There's a greater issue here in Genesis. We looked last week at the fall into sin. So you have creation, goodness, very goodness, temptation, fall, catastrophe. Promise of redemption. Seed of the woman will crush and destroy the head of the serpent. So you have the proto-evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. But then you immediately begin to see the catastrophic effects of sin. So... Although Eve becomes the mother of all the living, her two sons end up in a relationship where, the, where Cain kills his brother Abel. So not only do you have consequences, not only do you have death because of sin, you have fratricide, you have the, the murder of a brother. And then from Cain's line, and from Seth's line, you need to actually track out the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. So that Cain's line embodies rebellion and wickedness and sin. So that the seventh in Cain's line, Lamech, is someone who is boastful in his violence. If, If Cain is avenged seven times, I'll be avenged 77 times. I've killed someone for bothering me, is basically what he says. He's boastful and arrogant and violent. He's the epitome of The seed of of the line of the seed of the serpent. Seventh in that line. The seventh in the godly line is Enoch. Enoch known by walking with faith and then being taken to be with God and he was no more. In other words, what you're being told is that if you continue to listen to the serpent, you will end up in decreasing levels of depravity, sort of increasing levels of depravity. You'll get worse and worse and worse and worse as time goes on. If you walk in the line of redemption, if you are faithful to God, then you will, in the end, overcome death itself. That's, the, that, that's how the text is constructed, if you're paying attention. If, if you're sort of counting it out. Now, Enoch comes in a chapter which is devoted entirely, Genesis chapter 5, to death. So-and-so lived this many years, they had this many sons and daughters, then they died. Then he died. Then he died. Then he died. Every single person is dying, showing the universality of sin and the universality of the consequences of sin, which is death. Then you have Genesis 6, which is Noah. And with Noah, what you have is, there's a lot of things going on, one of which is this. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is over the waters. And then God begins to create habitats or environments in which life can flourish. God separates the waters from the dry land. In the Noah flood, the picture is that God resets creation back to Genesis 1-2 before the beginning of the creation week. It's purification and judgment. Everything is reset. The world is so corrupt, it needs to be reset. It needs to be, in a sense, annihilated. Except that in grace, there's a family. There's biodiversity. There's maintenance and preservation. When they come off the ark, Noah is obviously a second Adam. He is given the exact same commands Adam was given, be fruitful and multiply, etc., etc. He now stands as the progenitor of the race. Whereas Adam sinned by eating the fruit, Noah will have a sin recorded too. Which is getting drunk by drinking the fruit of the vine. It's a clear Adam parallel. And so what you find is that Noah, and of course then Noah's son's sin, by what? Exposing his nakedness. Adam sins, and the first thing that's exposed is his nakedness. It's just a clear parallel. So what you have is you have Noah acting as a second Adam, failing again. In other words, the problem wasn't the environment. The problem wasn't society. And everyone says, "Well, oh, if we could just reset the economy, if we could just reset the education system, if we could just reset the social order, if we could just go back to some sort of you know, social contract at the very beginning, if we could just go back to some sort of you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's state of nature or whatever, then things would be fine. One thing that, Noah, that Noah's flood teaches you is you can reset literally everything. The problem isn't external. The problem was preserved on the ark with Noah. The problem is the human heart. And no matter what you do... So now, societal structures are important. You can't, you can't take care of people properly without right structures. But the structures are useless without the right heart. A good heart can make up for some bad structures. Bad hearts will never make up for any type of structure. Ideally, you want both. You want a good heart implementing good structures. Right? Now, the big question, then, really, is what can God do in the face of rebellion, sin, and death? Genesis eleven, the Tower of Babel, shows the entire shows the race of people united against God. So, even after Noah. Before the flood, the race is against God. After the flood, the race is against God. So what can God do? What you're going to find is that God, who has been dealing at the global level for the first 11 chapters, now zooms into one man. One person is going to be the vehicle to change the world. Just one. The whole world can be against God in Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel, but God's going to pick one man. One solitary individual. And the author of Genesis, Moses, is actually going to spend more time writing about Abram than he wrote about all of the events in the first 11 chapters. In fact, if you think about all of the time and history represented in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, more space is going to be devoted to one person than all of that history combined. See, God cares about the world, but he cares about the world one person at a time. And so he cares about the world generically only by caring about people specifically. And if he's going to change the world, he's going to do it by getting hold of individuals and using them. Now, we have been somewhat brainwashed in Sunday school and in church to have this view that Abraham and and David and all these other Old Testament people are just heroes of the faith who can do no wrong. It's an entirely, entirely wrong reading of the Old Testament. Uh, in, in fact, the Old Testament, a lot, of, a lot of the Old Testament is designed to show you the utter failure and insufficiency of everyone who ever came before Jesus, Abraham included. So we must not think that God sort of looked through the world and said, you know what, there's, there's this guy down in Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram. He's pretty great. You know, I, I bet he's the guy who can actually change the world. In the book of Joshua tells us that God called Abram out of pagan idolatry. So he's a pagan idolater with all that that entails, just like anyone else. But God sets his grace upon him and God calls him. And what's the local context? You you, you must see this. So chapter 11, verse 28. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. In the land of his birth. Verse thirty. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Or she was child she was childless, semicolon. She was barren. Verse thirty two. Terah lived two hundred and five years and he died. How positive is this context? Death barrenness, death. The big question is, what can God do in a world that's characterized by such things? What can God do in a world that's characterized by death, barrenness, and death? Well, what he does is he calls Abram. And Abram is leaving a negative context. And the question, again, that for Abram is, can I trust God? I look around the world. The world is united in opposition against God. I look around my own local context, and all I'm experiencing is pain and suffering and loss. Where is God? What is God doing? What can God accomplish? So then God says, chapter 12, verse 1, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I'll show you. In other words, you need to trust me. You need to believe in me so much that you will literally give up everything to follow me. For many of us, we don't realize how culturally devastating this is. We're we're such a mobile society with such loose relationships. But for him to give up his nation, his people, and his father's household was... Really quite a devastating thing to be told to do. To go somewhere that God would show him later. But this is a promise. I will make you into a great nation. It's promise number one. You will become a great nation. So, can God bring life from death? Yes. Not only can he do so, but he can bless people abundantly. You will be a great nation. Promise number two. I will bless you. Abram, put, put your pagan idols away. Put your father's household away. Put your people away. Put your land away. I will be the one who blesses you. Promise number three. I will make your name great. People today, this should be relatively obvious, are talking about Abram, right now. I'm about to say his name, Abram. See how that works? His name is great. And it's not just that people are still talking about him, people still today also talk about um, Hitler. But it's that he actually has had an enormous impact in the history of the world for good. God has made his name great by working in him and by bringing his purposes to pass through him. Promise number four. You will be a blessing. You will be a blessing. This is where we somewhat get the, 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 the slogan that we are blessed to be a blessing. That's true. God blesses Abram so he can be a blessing to other people. The next promise, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. So now Abram will be a touchstone of blessing and cursing people's relationship to him in God's economy of salvation, ultimately fulfilled through Christ, will be how they are blessed or cursed. So that today, if you reject Abraham's great seed, Jesus, you cannot be blessed. The only way to be blessed by God is to bless the name of his son, Christ. If you curse the name of Christ, even by avoiding him, even by apathy towards him, by anything less than an adoration, then you'll be cursed. It's the touchstone. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples blessed through Abraham. Now, Abram's seed is the vehicle for this blessing. So Galatians makes it very clear that it's Jesus Christ who is the great blessing for all of the nations. All peoples on earth are blessed through Jesus. This is the argument in Paul of Paul in Galatians, and it's also in which is tracked, and you can trace this all through the canon. Jesus is the seed of Abram who will be a blessing to the nations. Now what security does Abram have at this time? that any of this will be true. All he has is the word of God. All he has is the declaration of the Lord. Now for you. I don't know what God's going to call you to go through this year. And the truth is, neither do you. But you have the Word of God. You have the promises of God. You can look at your context and you say, no, you don't understand. My context is one of, of death. My context is one of loss. My context is one of heartache. My context is is, is of such circumstances that I would never, never choose them. There are good things I want that I am deprived of. There there are bad things I don't want which I have in abundance. You don't understand my context. That's true, I don't. But God does. And the promise of God is that regardless of your context, regardless of Abram's local context, regardless of the context of the entire world in his day, God's word and God's promises is enough and they are sure and certain. Enough that you can actually literally base your entire life on them and walk by faith, not by sight. Part of our problem is that we are masters at indexing, just like Eve did in Genesis 3. We are masters at indexing all the things that we feel like we're deprived of. And we very often miss seeing all of the goodness of God in all the things that he's given us. So he gives us gifts, and even when we receive those gifts, we're thankful for them, but but we don't want them just like this. We would prefer the gift to function in our lives like that. And we, we are routinely just destroying our own joy by focusing on entirely the wrong things or entirely in the wrong proportion and balance of things. It's the, prim- it's, it's the primeval sin. It's the prototypical rebellion. God, I could run the universe better than you. God, I could run my life better than you. God, do you realize how many mistakes you've made directing my steps? Do you, do you realize how much better off I would be if, if, if this had happened then, and if, if this and, and that, and if this had come together? Don't you see how much better off I would be? Despite how many times we've introduced catastrophic pain into our own lives by rebelling against God's Word, we still tend to think that this time, this time I've got it. This time I'm right. This time there's just an extenuating circumstance which makes this okay at this time for me, not for anyone else. Now we need to trust God. God orders our steps aright, even if it's a context of death and barrenness, and it looks like he's calling us to leave even that remnant of frail security behind. We have to trust the Lord. So, verse 4: Abram went. He obeyed. He trusted. And then, a little bit later on, verse 8, he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. He goes, he worships, he trusts, he follows. He's going to devote his life to the Lord. Now, that's all great. Called out of a difficult circumstance. Called to be great. Called to be a great nation. Called to be blessed. It's a wonderful thing. Called to be given land. Beautiful. So the very first thing you find in verse 10 is this. Now, there was a famine in the land. Now that, that's just a kick in the teeth, Right? That I left this land, where I was pretty happy living, to go to this land, and the very first thing that I experienced in this land is a famine. And Abram could rightly have said, Do you realize that my life, Lord, was actually a little bit more comfortable before I started following you? And it probably was. I had a network of friends. I had a network of family. Our land didn't have a famine when I left. And now here I am, and I'm the land that you are giving me is a land that's experiencing famine. I'm not sure about you. But perhaps he began to waver. Perhaps he began to doubt. In fact, he goes down to Egypt and immediately acts without faith in the protection of God. But then happier times, chapter 13. Chapter 13, the Lord blesses them. Verse 2, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Lots of stuff, lots of money, lots of possessions. It's a lot better than famine. Famine. So now he's left famine and he's become utterly rich. In fact, he's so rich that his family divides. There's quarreling between him and Lot to the point where they have to separate. And Lot ends up living near Sodom. And that's going to become important in a few chapters. So now what you find is that there's famine... They're suffering because of lack, and now they're suffering because of plenty. And then chapter 14. Chapter 14, there's a war, there's a disaster, there's a military conquest. Abraham's family and household is carted off. Now they win in the end. But how's that for following God? How's that for 2018, 2019, and 2020? If God comes and says, follow me, I'm going to bless you greatly. 2018 is the year of famine. 2019 is the year of family division. 2020 is the year of war. 2020 is the year of utter disaster in your life. Do you still want to be blessed by a God like that? But that's the only God there is. What what you don't find is God saying, Abram, your context stinks. I'm going to rescue you and give you your best life now. You are going to be called out of this context to happiness, health, prosperity, lots of good times and laughter and joy. Now all of that is going to come in his life. I mean, God isn't masochistic, but you have to understand that God calls us. This is so desperately important, and something we just continue to fight against so much. God does not call us in the first instance to be happy. He calls us to be blessed, and you're not blessed if all God does is confirm you in happiness in your sin. God is is far more interested in moral integrity, God is far more interested in conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, and that means refining fire and pain as we learn to trust him and do things his way. So, So in that sense, Jesus wasn't joking when he said, if you want to be my disciple every day, pick up your cross and die. And if you won't do that, you're not my follower. Now, if we t- think that picking up a cross every day and dying means an increase in happiness, I think we've misunderstood the metaphor. There's joy in all of this, but it's not flippant giddiness. There, there is deep. Seated worth and value in this, so that it's not worth going back. He's better off than he was before. But it's not because of the increase in material comfort. It's because he is wrestling and struggling and growing with Almighty God who demands holiness of his followers. And, and so, no, Abraham's not going to throw in the towel, he's not going to stop trusting God. But it's a struggle, it's wrestling. Which is why later, Jacob will be broken only when he wrestles with God. So I promise you this. If you want to follow God and be blessed, even if you go through really, really difficult and dark and deep things, God will be with you, and God will work in it and through it to bless you no matter what. That's the kind of God He is. He never, never promises to exempt His children from trials, but He always promises to be with them to the very end of the age, no matter what. Through it all. Trust Him. Trust God. No matter what. Because, if you really want to know if God can bring life from death, you have to read Genesis 15. And that passage says this. After this, that is, after the famine, family quarrels, and the war that carted off his family, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And know, look, just, just know what God says. Do not be afraid. Do you think that maybe Abram had a right to feel afraid at this point in his life? What are you, don't be afraid. God, I left everything to go to a place of famine, which resulted in riches and quarreling, and we've just experienced a war. And now you're showing up, and, the, and you're telling me, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I live in a world of famine and warfare, and you're not protecting me from any of that. What are you talking about? I have every right to be afraid. Then Abraham, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. Amazing verse. I am your shield. I am your sovereign. I am your king. I am your protector. Abram, the world is a terrifying, dangerous place. But you have me. Abram, the world is full of danger and turmoil, but I am your shield. I'm in charge of this. You have nothing to be afraid of when you are encamped inside of my walls. I am your fortress. I am your rock. Do not worry about the circumstances of your life. I've got this. I've got you. Trust me. Do not be afraid of, I am your shield. I will keep you safe. I, the Lord God, take that as my covenant responsibility with you. No one less than God himself is your protector. I am your shield. Your very great reward. God himself is our reward. He rewards us in many ways. But the truest reward is his own presence. He draws us close to himself. And we need to we need to and we need to recognize that God keeps us safe even through death. George has never been safer than he is right now. George is utterly and absolutely safe for all of eternity. And he has been safe all this time with his trust in Christ. No one was going to snatch George out of his Savior's hands. You're safe. You're secure. But that doesn't mean you're not going to die doesn't mean that you're not going to go through a dying process. 98 years is just a a few weeks short of 99. But it could have been 100 years. It could have been 200 years. It could have been 500 years. It could have been 969 years. Time runs out. And when we think about what we'd like our lives to be and and all the rest, one of the things is just to recognize that no matter how, you could have it perfectly designed life where the architecture is just perfect and eventually it ends no matter who you're with or not with no matter what you do or don't do no matter what you accomplish or fail to accomplish it always ends in this world but can you trust God through it all Can he bring life from death? That's the question. But Abram says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Interesting question. Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. That means that he didn't live in a modern city with light pollution. You actually see the stars. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is a key New Testament verse. Abram goes out Based the fact that his body is as good as dead, he, Sarah is not able to have children. He's not able to produce children. And so there are no children going to be born naturally. And, and he knows this. And he goes inside and the Lord says, I'm going to give you offspring as innumerable as the stars. And Abram says, okay, I believe you. And he did. He believed that God could bring life out of death. He believed that there was a path of blessing because of God, even when there was no human possibility of it. And once Abram exercises that kind of faith in the promise of God, God enters. God literally, the, the Hebrew uh, language is, he cuts a covenant. When a new covenant is created, in, in, in Hebrew, we, it's, it's, a covenant is cut. And they did it literally. Literally. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down in the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So what Abram does is he takes these animals. Some of you may remember this, a year or two or three ago. Uh, we acted this out on the front. Do you guys remember this? It's great. And... uh even a visitor who got involved in in that. uh, was an astounding thing. Um, And so you will recall recall this. Abram cuts the animals in two and and separates the halves. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about cutting animals in two. Hopefully not an awful lot, unless you're a butcher of some kind uh, vocationally. But if if you're sadistic, that's another story. So you, you cut these animals in two and you arrange the pieces. Now, They are not sanitized. The blood would just gush and flow, filling the space in between. So what you have is you have literally pools of blood. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and after they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Abraham's asleep. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is symbolic of the fire and smoke. God often will reveal himself in fire and smoke in the Old Testament. This is symbolic of the, of the presence of God. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now when you cut a covenant, this is what happened. You would arrange the animals with all the, with all the blood in between. And then, if it was a mutual covenant, you would walk with your partner through the blood. Through the middle of the dead animals. Not entirely a pleasant experience. And the image was this. I am so committed to you that if I violate this covenant, may I end up like these beasts. May I die. May my blood be spilled and shed. May li- my life be severed if I violate this covenant. Now, if you were an invading army and you were oppressing people, then as the dominant king, you might make the lesser king walk through it by himself. And the idea there is, listen, these are the terms of your life. You violate my covenant, or you you violate my treaty with you, and I'm going to do to you what's been done to these animals. So it's an object lesson. The person who walks through, whether it's mutual, both take responsibility to the point of death, or if one is forced to walk through because of dominance, the point is this. The partner who walks through the pieces is symbolically promising that their life will be destroyed if the covenant is broken. When two people walk through it, two people are responsible for it. If one person unilaterally goes through it, only one person is responsible for it. And who goes through these pieces? Not Abram. He's uselessly asleep. It's God. What God is saying here is saying, Abram, I am so committed to these promises that I will die if this covenant is violated. Well, how can God die? Well, for one, he can't, so the covenant's not going to be broken. You you can't have a greater security than that. The eternal God promises to die if the covenant is broken. He's not going to let the covenant be broken. But even more so. The covenant will be broken, not by the divine partner, but by the human partners. Again and again and again and again. Is God going to let the covenant just fall apart because the human people never fulfill their part of it? No. No. God's Son will become a man. And God's Son will take upon Himself the covenant curse. And God's Son, like these animals, will literally spill His blood in pools and die because the covenant has been broken. And in His death, He will pay for all the violation of the covenant of all the sinners who have lived in this world. And he will provide redemption because God, right at the very beginning of Genesis, promised, I will bless all nations, Abram, through your offspring. This covenant will be sealed with my blood. And then the great question that's dominated Genesis up till now is this Can God bring life out of death? And there you have the corpse of the Son of God incarnate in the grave pierced and broken, severed and bloody. And you hear the question again, can God bring life out of death? And not only do you have a miraculous conception out of barrenness, you have resurrection. The gospel here in Genesis is the great answer to this question. And so we know, not only can God bring blessing... Not only can God bring life out of death, He's done it. Not just in Abraham, but with the resurrection of Christ. There's not just life out of death, there is glorification after death through Jesus and all who have faith in Him. And not merely for us, um, but for all of God's people. And not merely for them, but for all of the universe. He's reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to Himself. There's a new heavens and a new earth. Life comes triumphantly in, in, in an amazing way out of death. And out of nowhere else! Which is good, because this world is nothing but characterized by sin and the curse and death. And so where there is life, it's the gift of God. And so I don't know what God is calling you to go through. But I promise you this. If your faith is in Him, there's resurrection life awaiting you. That's where you're headed. Resurrection glorification. Glorification. Because through God's Son, and the Gospel, there is eternal life that comes through His death on our behalf so that we can live. You can trust a God like that. You can. So don't look at your circumstances. Look at the God who walks through the pieces of the animal. Look at the God whose Son dies. Look at the God who raises His Son to life for our justification and go into 2018 with utter confidence. Not because of you, but because of Him. I'm going to our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.